Good morning, church. <clears throat> Turn with me, if you would, to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1, looking at verse 13 this morning. <clears throat> the title of my sermon is A Battle for the Mind. And in God's kindness, this sermon has been preached about three times already this morning. Which, I, it's just so encouraging when that happens, where the Lord has a word for us, and he's just stirring that through the singing, through prophetic words. And so I'm excited to bring this word to you guys this morning. The theme of this morning is the battle for the mind is won over and over and over again by a steady resetting of hope on the grace of Christ. And so I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we're going to, we're going to get after it. This is God's holy an authoritative word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we do come before you humbly because that is the only way that we can we cherish your word. We are so glad that you've given this word to us. Lord, fill us with your spirit now. Lord, fill me with your spirit as I deliver this sermon. Let it be edifying to this congregation. Lord, would you allow me to get out of the way so your spirit can work this morning? Lord, give me grace to preach with liberty and joy and passion and clarity so that we would walk away this morning with our eyes fixed on grace, with our affections raised for Christ, with our hope set fully on the grace that is coming to us because of your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the past 15 years or so, uh, mixed martial arts has quickly risen to become America's most popular combat sport. Boxing views continue to plummet and be on the decline, and mixed martial arts, or MMA, continues to be on the rise. Combat sports require intense mental focus, and the fighters all have regular rhythms of what they do to prepare for each fight or each battle. Although physical preparation is key, most fighters focus on mental clarity and preparedness before each fight. Here are a few examples of what champion mixed martial arts fighters would do leading up to their fights. Matt Lindland, for example, would avoid showering for a week. This would repulse his opponents, making their lives absolutely miserable whenever they got near him in the cage. Clay Guida, another champion UFC fighter, would have his older brother, who outweighs him by 60 pounds, repeatedly slap him in the face right outside the cage so that he would have already experienced the hardest hits of that night. Oh, guys. And finally, <laughs> Lyoto Machida <laughs> would drink his own urine before each fight <laughs> to flush out his system. <laughs> now, thankfully, I'm not going to recommend any of these methods for the Christian to win the battle for the mind. Yes, praise God. <laughs> but because the Christian way to engage the battle for our mind and to fight for our faith, no matter the intensity of the hardships we are facing, is to have a mind fixed 
on our future grace that is coming. Our text this evening, or evening, our text this morning focuses on future grace. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ that will be brought to us. That we're going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it starts off with therefore. So if you guys remember Bill's sermon from last week, I'm actually going to read verses 10 through 12. The grace that is with us now. Concerning this salvation, this is verse 10. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those he preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, therefore. And that's where our text begins. So because of the grace that we have received, because of the things that we know of the gospel of our salvation, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So because of the grace we receive and have now, we look forward with great anticipation the grace that is coming to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The battle-ready, persecution-enduring Christian is a Christian who has their minds fixed on grace. The way for us to be ready for whatever the world throws at us, the way we prepare for persecution, the way we prepare for hatred, the way that we endure living lives as exiles in a world that we were not made for, is to have clear, calm minds set immovably on our future grace. Here is what life looks like if we do not know this. We will be tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. We will be convinced of worldly ideologies that offer to fix things that only Jesus can. We will be hoping in hopeless things, which means we will live in cycles of constant disappointment. This is something that we've all experienced, being so excited or hopeful for something, whether it's a job change, buying a house, having children, getting into a relationship, whatever it is, hoping that this thing will fulfill and fix the hopelessness that we can feel and every last one of them will ultimately fail us. We don't set our minds on hope. We set our minds on our news feeds. We don't set our minds on grace. We forget eternity. We hope in anything but God. We're drawn to cynicism and doom and gloom because something that it does is it elevates us to a status of superiority. We're more enlightened than them that just don't understand it. We are arrogant and harsh when we could be holy, humble, and hopeful. When we're not prepared for the battle for our mind, we will look, sound, and feel like the world, governed by fear. We will get bitter. We will slander. We will sin. Peter is giving these Christians specific battle instructions. This is a people facing persecution. These are the elect exiles, chosen by God, hated by those around them. And all the dangers and ways that they must prepare to fight, be equipped to endure, be ready for whatever the hostile world is throwing at them, Peter gives these commands. Be sober-minded. Set your hope entirely on grace. That's it. 
Get your minds right. Remember the grace that is coming. Remember that you are going to see Christ one day. We must prepare our minds for the continual war we will find ourselves in. But the way to be prepared is surprising. Peter doesn't call us to have someone slap us in the face repeatedly. There is no panic in Peter's tone. Today, the spirit of the age is panic, fear, and anger, but this passage is corrective in adjusting us to be sober-minded and hopeful. When we engage the battle for the mind correctly, we see that this text is filled with hope. It lets us know that we can be prepared for the battle, that the war that we feel waging against our minds can be won. The Christian never needs to be in fear. The Christian never needs to be in a panic. The Christian never needs to lose hope. The surety of our sanity in this life is the surety of the hope of the gospel. The grace that will be revealed and brought to us. Our hope is to set our hope on the grace that is going to be brought to us. And so we're going to look at two ways for us to effectively fight in this battle for the mind. How we answer the call to stay sober-minded, to be ready, and to fully set our hope on grace. So let's jump in to point number one. Recognize you're in a war. Recognize you're in a war. We have to look at what our identity means. We are the elect exiles, chosen by God, rejected by the world. Listen, we will never gain the status of loved by the world. We were never meant to have that status. Our convictions are not popular, praised, or seen as virtuous in the world's eyes. And church, that's okay. We did not take up the cross of Christ so we could live lives of comfort and acceptance. We took up the cross of Christ so that we would have unshakable hope. We need to live our lives not for worldly approval, but in such a way where the strongest gravitational pull of everything, our hope, our peace, our joy, our greatest love, all of it is this gospel of grace. You look out at financial instability. You look out at marital strife. You look out at discontentment and singleness. You look out at loneliness and fear of persecution, ways that you've been sinned against, all of these things orbiting around your life, but at the very center of it all. <laughs> at the very center of it all. With the strongest gravitational pull, the things all these issues and hardships and sorrows orbit around is the hope of the grace brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our sweet and beautiful gospel, our inheritance that is kept and guarded for us by God himself. We do not belong to this world. But sometimes we live like this world is our final home. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we living right now as if we're taking some earthly treasures with us? We have to ask ourselves, where are we investing our time, our money, our gifts? Are we stewarding these things for eternity? Or are we over-concerned with materialism, wealth, financial security, the American dream. 
The American dream sounds amazing and it is enticing, but we must forsake putting our hope and our comfort in those desires because it is an endless chase that does not satisfy. Are we designing our lives and what we value from an eternal anticipatory perspective? The hope of the grace that is going to be brought to us. This text goes on to show how these heavenly realities have a direct implication on our holiness. <laughs> when the joy of that day is near in our sight and vision and affections, the temporary fleeting and deceitful happiness that we believe sin brings is no longer attractive. We kill our flesh and our sinful passions and enjoy holiness now which holiness, by the way, is God's design for true human flourishing. We enjoy holiness now. We enjoy grace now as we wait for more grace to come. Grace upon grace upon grace. We have grace now and there's greater grace that's coming. That's the Christian life. If our hearts are trying to find satisfaction in anything other than God, we will sin. John Piper says it like this. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. The promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more desired, is more to be desired than life itself. Spiritual warfare is real. We have to prepare our minds for action. Another translation says, gird your loins of your mind, which means get ready for battle. When you gird your loins, it means you wrap up that tunic and you take out your sword and you sprint into battle. God is calling us to be ready for battle, to be ready to fight. We're not waiting for the war to start. We are in it right now. God wants us to resolve to remember our reality. Francis Schaeffer has an analogy of two chairs that we're always sitting in. He calls them the chair of faith and the chair of unfaith. And we're always sitting in one of these two chairs. The chair of unfaith is where we sit when we act as if only what we see is real. It's the visible things around us are 100% of our reality. We forget about angels and demons the heavenly realities that are real at all times, not just when we think about them. But on contrast, the other chair is the chair of faith. When we realize that our reality is both what we see and what we do not see at all times, there is no distinction. The devil prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour, and he wants your mind and will use anything to distract you from the hope in this text. The news is crazy. Their job is literally to keep us fearful, frustrated, and angry enough to keep coming back to their sources over and over again. They offer no solution. They just want our rage and our fear meters to rise, and they are very good at it. If you're someone who is battling anxiety or has a low-grade sense of constant frustration, not necessarily always boiling mad, but there is that constant little simmer or sizzle of frustration, I'd encourage you to strongly consider and evaluate all of your media intake. Newspapers, 
online articles, news outlets, Fox News, CNN, PragerU, The Dispatch, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Twitter, Facebook, podcasts, your music. Evaluate these things. And I mean strongly evaluate it. I don't just mean a passing acknowledgement of what sources you're drawn to and why and then moving on. No, I mean pray to God and ask him for help. There is not a soul in this room, and that includes my soul, there is not a soul in this room that is spending too much time reading their Bibles and praying and not enough time consuming media. (laughs) We need to wrestle with the question, are these things helping me set my hope fully on the grace that is coming? Or are these things making my hope wilt away and wither? Ask God where this needs to change and then change it. (laughs) We need to grow in our intentionality of what we consume. Uh, There's a book called Every Moment Holy. And uh, what they do is they take ordinary things of life and and add prayers and liturgies around them to make every moment holy. (laughs) They have a uh, certain liturgy or prayer before regular activities. Here is the one before media consumption. It says this, O discerning spirit, who alone judges all things rightly, now be present in my mind and active in my imagination as I prepare to engage with the claims and questions of diverse cultures incarnated in the stories that people tell. Let me experience mediums of art and expression, neither a passive consumer nor as an entertainment glutton, but rather as one who through such works would more fully and compassionately enter this ongoing human conversation of mystery and meaning, wonder and beauty, good and evil, sorrow and joy, fear and love. I am not praying that every time I open up my Facebook feed, but we need intentionality. The media is constantly coming at us. Everything is constantly trying to disciple and train us. Our minds are getting pulled in so many directions, whether we understand that or not. We have to be aware of this information. We have to fix our minds on the things of God. That's what we're called to do in Colossians 3, in Romans 12, in Philippians 2. We need to live out those passages in our community with one another. When we do that... We can love people through differences of opinions easily. Politics and interpretations of the news, personalities, personal preferences. We're not defined by these things. We're not defined by our opinions, masks, vaccines, COVID, presidents, politics, whatever. I I felt the heart rates of everyone raise when I just said all those words. (laughs) Listen, if it's outside the scope of the gospel and real lasting truth, we can love each other well despite our differences. Let me correct myself. I said can. If we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we are commanded to love each other well. We're commanded to love one another as Christ loves us, to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us into the family of God. Let me pause for a minute and consider how were we welcomed into the family of God? Well, I'm a sinner. I hated God. I wanted nothing to do with him. I was deserving of hell. That justice that would be brought on me that I well deserved, eternal suffering. And I wanted nothing to do with him. But then I was welcomed into the family of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
and he loves me each day. And he gives me mercy each day. And that is how we are to welcome one another. We will be empowered to live out the doctrines that we believe. We will be distinct. But church, (laughs) the battle for the mind is a difficult battle. Consider with me. Why do you think Peter is telling them this? Why is this section in our Bibles? If this was simple and we just naturally did this, we would not be instructed to do these things. Because as beautiful as this hope is that is coming, it is hard to hold on to. Isn't it? Life is difficult. Suffering is real. Peter isn't slamming his fist on a pulpit and saying, get over it. Remember heaven. No, this text is Peter kneeling down next to you. After the devastating loss of a loved one or a child or a terminal diagnosis or the exposure of an unfaithful spouse or in the midst of you being trapped in the haunting cage of habitual sin and saying, I promise you, it will get better. I promise you, Jesus is returning. I promise you, pain will one day be gone completely. So take my hand and let's look to that day together. Listen, the darkest and most terrifying tragedy that we fear, the suffering that we look at and say, oh Lord, I'll handle anything except for that, which oftentimes is the very type of suffering that comes. Many of you are walking through that experience right now. (laughs) When we battle correctly for our mind, that suffering can fall under the category of doing all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's the real strength of that text. It's not just a slap on a coffee mug. It means when you are in your darkest moments, Christ has his hand on your shoulder, empowering you, strengthening you, helping you to remember, I'm coming back. All of these stressors that we face, debt, unemployment, grief, suffering, exhaustion, pain, all of those hardships bow before our heavenly realities. They all lose power when that grace is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those hardships are not coming with us into heaven, not even a little bit. All of it will be erased, and the only thing in front of us will be inexpressible joy everlasting. We trust in our God to such a degree that we don't get our feathers ruffled. Christians should be the hardest people to make angry. We're not easily flustered or thrown off. We rest in the sovereign hands of our mighty God who cares for us, who loves us, and does so perfectly. So remember that you are in a war, which takes us to point number two. Remember the result of that war. We win. (laughs) And the grace that is coming is inexplainable, never-ending, and ultimately glorious. 
but remembering is active. We have to actively remember the results of the war, not just a passing thing. Oh yeah, one day heaven's going to happen and it's going to be really great. No, we actively set our minds on this hope daily. And we do this by getting into our Bibles. Now I wonder, does that answer satisfy you? The world is on fire. Everything's falling apart. I'm suffering in a way that no one understands. And you're telling me to reset my hope simply by reading the Bible? Yes. <laughs> Do we find this concept satisfying conceptually? Do we find this thing satisfying conceptually but have a hard time experiencing the life-giving hope from our Bibles in reality? Like it makes sense up here, but when I'm reading, I, there's not hope that's rising as I'm reading the genealogies. Listen, we have to believe that the Bible can help us. That no matter our circumstances, our temporary joys or temporary trials, side note, hold on, I have to say this. If you're in the deepest, darkest suffering, maybe don't start with the genealogies. I just feel like I need to say that. <laughs> no matter our circumstances, our temporary joys or temporary trials, we hold on with an iron grip the hope of the grace that is coming to us, that we can access through his word. We access grace when we open our Bibles. And it's not a little bit of grace to get us through a couple of hours. It is grace immeasurable. Everything in here is profitable, even the genealogies. I don't know why I keep talking about that. All right. And we access this grace anytime we open our Bibles. John Piper is very helpful here. I love this. He says, we learn that grace is ready to flow to us every time we take up the inspired scriptures to read them. And we learn that grace will abide with us when we lay the Bible down and go about our daily living. In other words, we learn that grace is not merely a past reality, but a future one. Every time I reach for the Bible, God's grace is a reality that will flow to me. Every time I put the Bible down and go about my business, God's grace will go with me. Scripture is the greatest defense, hope, surety, comfort that will not change. It is a steady flow of grace. God speaks to us through his word. The God that created everything, the God that knows all things, is talking to us when we open our Bibles. Let's get into the word. We must know this book, and through that book we will know our God. So we constantly prepare our minds, filling our mind with the word of God. And I had to. Spurgeon describes this only as Spurgeon can. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but to eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. <laughs> it is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last <laughs> you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models and what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. <laughs> Read the Bible. Acknowledge when your hope is fading. Confess your sins or <laughs> where you notice your desires and your trust are being placed into the nonsense of this world. Rehearse that grace that will be brought to us. 
When the reality of that day is near to us is when we are prepared for action, sober-minded. There's a steady resolve to spend yourselves for Christ, to exhaust yourself joyfully for the cause of Christ. Because he is so glorious and merciful, and I am so sinful and so forgetful that apart from Christ, I deserve hell. But grace will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. No matter what comes your way, church, stop and remember the crucified Savior. You look him right in the eyes and you remember the torment, the betrayal, the hatred, and the wrath that Jesus Christ took for you. And then you refresh and reset your trust in him again. Nothing can undo the sacrifice of our Savior. And we also remember in community... Have friends who walk through trials with you. When I have the moments where I can't see the beauty and the hope of the grace that is coming, I have always, in God's kindness to me, had friends who can help remove the clutter and the dust from my eyes so that I can see the cross again and so that I can hope afresh again. We were not made to do this in isolation. Bible studies, join them. Get in the word with others in this church. That way we can armor up and steal our souls, cover our bodies with the armor of the word of God because with it we can withstand all things. Fight sin with brothers and sisters. Confess those sins and temptations. Repent. Forsake the desires and other hopes that you've put your hope in. Listen, here's the thing. God knows that we are dust. He doesn't think we're superstars who are going to absolutely kill it at this whole Christianity thing. Can we be real for a second? Can we put away permanently, put it away, the notion that we are impressive? We're not. If we're impressive, the gospel of grace doesn't make sense because we don't need saving. We are not impressive. Can we just solidify that? One of our core beliefs. I'm going to add it. I'm not. It's not a core belief. But it's important. (laughs) We are not impressive. Let us put to death the idea that rather than be transparent about my pain and my hardships and my struggling, I'm going to be impressive. We have to stop. Let us be sober-minded. Let us be realistic and raw and transparent and run to the throne of grace together. God calls weak people to do mighty things to show his power and his glory. So we confess to God. We confess to friends when we are not sober-minded. We tell them, I'm struggling with, and then we tell them specifically what it is. And then we ask them to pray for us. Our minds have to constantly be recalibrated to think of grace, which is why we gather each week. I need to reset my hope to the grace that will be brought to me. And that's what's been happening all Sunday morning. And this type of living will strengthen our communities, will be quicker to overlook offenses. There should be nothing. Let me just hit this one more time. No type of conflict or hurt or hatred that supersedes Christian reconciliation. 
There are qualifiers here, certainly, but there is no way when we are sober-minded, when repentance and confession and forgiveness are given in a real way, not a superficial way, there is no way we have done something worse to one another than we personally have done to Jesus Christ. And he forgives us and welcomes us in. Christians ought to be the best at working through conflict, arguments, and disagreements. We have the same spirit living inside of us. We have a theology that automatically gives any person we speak to dignity and worth because they bear the image of our God. When we cannot reconcile, it is because we are not living in light of that day. John Newton, the slave trader, so amazingly converted by grace, comments on the eternal bond between Christians by highlighting how Jesus views each Christian. I love this. I love every quote. That's why it's in here. Um, <laughs> the Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. <laughs> and finally, our remembering will be realized. The grace that will be revealed to us is our future grace that awaits us in heaven. It is when all our sorrows are eclipsed by the beauty of heaven and the realities of all the stored up grace being unleashed upon us in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. Endless joys, endless grace. That is what Peter is using to equip the saints to endure persecution with. That anticipatory joy, that grace that is going to blow all our minds away. I love the thing that we say, I, don't, I meant to mention it, uh, but I didn't add it in here. When we get to heaven, none of us is going to look around and say, is that it? <laughs> none of us are going to be disappointed. But we need a joyful invigoration here, a sober preparedness for whatever comes our way. Don't give in to fear, we have Jesus. Don't give in to fear, we have the Spirit. Don't give in to fear, we have an advocate. <laughs> we have the ear of the Father. So Christians, let's be realistic. And that's not a cynical realistic, like truly realistic. Whenever we think, oh no, this thing that's making waves in the church is going to overpower the gospel and undermine the mission of the church. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Our God is too powerful. The gospel is too strong for some worldly ideology to completely undermine and get rid of the church. <laughs> we have nothing to fear. God requires us to re-engage and reinvigorate our hope regularly. We get battered down and fatigued and then reset our hope again. Band, you can start coming up now. I'm going to want to sing immediately when I sit down. <laughs> our north that we calibrate our compass towards is the hope of grace brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge when we fail at that, and then we pick up where we left off, one foot after another, trudging along faithfully, keeping our eyes set on the cross of Christ. 
the grace of our God empowering us all along the way until we experience the joys of heaven. When our hope is set on grace, it is incredible. We become invincible. We can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. <laughs> for the Christian who knows this understands that this life is as bad as it will get for us because we're not headed for hell because our inheritance is being kept and grace is going to be brought to us. It only gets better after we die. Death has no sting. The sobered mind that can stop and say, I don't understand this. And in the moment, it doesn't feel like I can handle it. But my hope is not in now, nor tomorrow, nor a month from now. Our hope is in the day we see Christ face to face. Our hope is set in the eternity that is waiting for us. Our hope is in heaven where sorrows do not exist. Where suffering ceases to exist. Where tears are dried and happiness abounds. Where everything we've read about and learned of heaven will be infinitely better than we could have ever imagined. Because we'll be living it. That is setting our hope on the coming grace. On our future grace. That is how we prepare our minds for action. That is how we ready and steady ourselves for the battle. When we do what this text commands, we have this complete and total unshakability and stability because of what's coming. All of our hope fully is set on the grace that's coming. Not half of our hope, not most of our hope, all of our hope. Total abandonment of worldly hope, total acceptance of godly Christian grace-filled hope. This is how we win the battle for the mind. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen.